Amen. Thank you. First Chronicles chapter 11, please, this evening. First Chronicles chapter 11. And let's go ahead and stand. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter together this evening. And actually, I want to go back a couple of verses into chapter 10 and begin with chapter 10 and verse number 13. So Saul died for his transgression, which he committed against the Lord, even against the word of the Lord, which he kept not, and also for asking counsel of one that had a familiar spirit to inquire of it, and inquired not of the Lord, therefore he slew him, and turned the kingdom unto David the son of Jesse. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And moreover in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that lettest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king of Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David, and David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab the son of Zeruiah went up first and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle, therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city round about, even from Milo round about, and Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, and with all Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had, Jashabim and Hachmanite, the chief of the captains. He lifted up his spear against three hundred slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, who was one of the three mighties. He was with David at Pasdamim, and there the Philistines were gathered together to battle, where was a parcel of ground full of barley. And the people fled from before the Philistines, and they set themselves in the midst of that parcel and delivered it, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by a great deliverance. Now three of the thirty captains went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, and the host of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the hold, and the Philistine garrison was then at Bethlehem. And David longed and said, Oh, that one would give me drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. And the three brake through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. But David would not drink of it, but poured it out unto the Lord. And said, My God forbid it me that I should do this thing. Shall I drink the blood of these men that have put their lives in jeopardy? 
for with the jeopardy of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things did the three mightiest. And Abishai, the brother of Joab, he was chief of the three. For lifting up his spear against three hundred, he slew them and had a name among the three. Of the three, he was more honorable than the two, for he was their captain. Howbeit he attained not to the first three. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, who had done many acts, he slew two lion-like men of Moab. Also he went down and slew a lion in a pit in a snowy day. And he slew an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits high. And in the Egyptian's hand was a spear like, to, like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff and plucked the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and slew him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and had the name among the three mighties. Behold, he was honorable among the thirty, but attained not to the first three, and David set him over his guard. And also the valiant of the armies were Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shamoth, the Herorite, Helaz, the Pelonite, Ira, the son of Ikish, the Tekoite, Abiezer, the Antithite, Sibekai, the Hushathite, Eli, the Aohite, Mahari, the Netophathite, Helad, the son of Baanab, the Netophathite, Ithai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, that pertained to the children of Benjamin, Benaiah the Perathite, Hurai of the brooks of Gaash, Abiel the Arbathite, Asmavath the Baharumite, Eliabah the Shalbanite, the sons of Hashem the Gizite, the Gizanite, Jonathan the son of Shaggi the Hararite, Ahiam the son of Sakar the Hararite, Eliphal the son of Ur, Hefer the, Hefer the Macarathite, Ahijah the Pelonite, Hezrel the Carmelite, Naari the son of Ezbi, Joel the brother of Nathan, Mibhar the son of Hagarai, Zalek the Ammonite, Neherai the Barathite, the armor bearer of Job the son of Zeruiah, Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite, Zabad the son of Eli, Adina the son of Sheza, the Reubenite, captain of the Reubenites, and thirty with him. Hanan the son of Maacah and Jehoshaphat and Jehoshaphat the Mithonite, Uzziah the Ashtarathite, Shema and Jehiel the sons of Hothan the Ararite, Jadael the son of Shimri and Joah his brother the Tizite, Eliel the Maavite, Jerobi and Jeho- Joshaviah the sons of Elianam, and Ithmam the Moabite, Eliel and Obed and Jaziel the Mesabite. And we will stop there, although the list does continue in chapter chapter 12, but we're going to stop. Let's pray. Father, is my hope for us, my prayer to you for us, that we would truly value all of your word as being that, your words to us. You are not given to idle speech. You are not given to nostalgic reminiscence. You speak with purpose and with power. And there is a reason for all that you say and we ask to understand it so that we might be rightly oriented to you, that we might rightly conduct ourselves in this world. And so we pray for your help, please. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated.
I'm going to try and return to this thought at the end of the message, but let us begin by remembering that the original recipients of these words and the many, many names that have been recorded are listening to ancient history when they hear them. King David had been dead something in the vicinity of 500 years when the Babylonian captivity ends. And yet David is the subject matter of almost all of 1 Chronicles. From this moment on, from 1 Chronicles 11, 1, through the end of, the, end of 1 Chronicles, I believe 29 chapters, it will be about David and his kingdom. A kingdom that, again, these people had a connection to, but no recollection of. Their view of the Davidic kingdom was one of absolute and unmitigated disaster. Their recent history was that of being carried away captive because of the failure of the descendants of David. For better or worse, it was a descendant of David who had sat upon the throne until the very end. So one of the things that we have to always kind of contemplate, folks, is what is the point of going back to revisit old history? And we will, again, re return to that again. What is, what is the point of sitting a group of people down and expecting them to occupy their time with something that is 500 years old, and yet that is exactly what is happening here. And that is not all that is happening. This story is being told in light of and in contrast to what happened to the house of Saul. Without going back and re-preaching chapter 10, but in chapter 10 verses 3 through 5, you have Saul and the humiliation of his death. He does not get a heroic death. And in chapter 10 and verse number 6, we are told about the destruction of his house, his children, Jonathan being one of them who was a true bright spot in an otherwise embarrassing reign. And then chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, tells you about the desecration of his corpse and the way that it was mutilated as part of the gloating by the Philistines upon their great victory. And so Saul died, verse number 13. And so Saul died. He died in humiliation. He died in rejection. There are somewhere in the vicinity of 18 different words describing dying or failing or running in chapter 10. It is the hallmark of Saul's reign. Not godliness, not victory, not triumph, but disaster. And all of this is tied to his reaction to the word of the Lord. This is very clear, folks. Verse number, four, uh, verse number 13, Saul died for his transgression which he committed against the Lord. What do you mean against the Lord? Even against the word of the Lord. How do I transgress against the Lord? By transgressing against his word. 
And there's a list of things that God told Saul to do that he didn't do. And God told kings they couldn't do and Saul did. And he didn't seek in sincerity God's advice. He sought him out when he was desperate. That's not the same thing as seeking him out out of sincerity. And so he died. And with that, God turned the kingdom over to David. And the first thing that I wish to call your attention to, and that will kind of be a recurring theme through the outline as we follow it, is that just as God is the central figure in the destruction of King Saul, God is the central figure in the exaltation of King David. These are not mere events, folks. I mean, I don't believe that there are mere events. I, don't, I, I believe that Joe Biden is a King Cyrus kind of figure. He's, he's on, he's, he, he, he occupies, the, whether he took the White House by dishonesty or honesty, he is in the White House for the same reason that Cyrus was the ruler of Persia. God put him there. So these men, this is not just that Saul failed in a human sense when he could have done better or that David had extraordinary gifts that Saul did not have. The, the pivotal distinctive between them is the way that they interacted with God and the way that they thought about God. And Saul had no real interest in God and was not really under God's influence, but David was. And so in chapter 10 and verse number 14, the last phrase, and turned the kingdom unto David, the son of Jesse. The clear activity of God. Chapter 11, verse number 3, tells us that David is the king because God made him the king. Therefore came all the elders of Israel, the king to Hebron, and made David made a covenant with them before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So God had announced, we all know the story, that, David, that, that he would seek a king after his heart. And David was that king. 1 Samuel 16, 13, Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And it was, by the way, just a note, it was this anointing, not, not his salvation that David is concerned about when he says in Psalm 51, don't take your spirit from me. The, the anointing work of the spirit in his position as king. Don't do to me as you did to Saul. That is my prayer. In chapter 11, verse number 9, David waxed greater and greater for the Lord of hosts was with him. Was he, a, was he a heroic figure? Yes. Was he personally brave beyond any shadow of a doubt? Was he a skillful combatant? Yes, he was. He knew what to do with the weapons at his disposal. Is that the secret to his success? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. David was what David was because the hand of the Lord was upon him. And it was the Lord who provided him with these mighty men. Chapter 11 and verse number 10. These also are the chief of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom and with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. 
So it is the word of the Lord, it is the word of the Lord, it is the word of the Lord, it is the word of the Lord. Verse number 14, they set themselves at the midst of that parcel, delivered it, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord saved them by great deliverance. Whether it be the Davids of the empire of the kingdom or the mighty men of the kingdom, they are all what they are for the same reason, by the word of the Lord, by the will of God, by the clear activity of God. And you have here one incident, folks, that highlights both, I think, both the character of the men who worked with, who served under David, and the character of David as he thought about his Lord, and that is the incident in verses 16 through 19. And David was then in the hold, and the Philistine garrison was then at Bethlehem. And the men were in hiding. And David longed and said, Oh, the one would give me a drink of the water of the well of Bethlehem that is at the gate. Well, I sure would like to have a drink from that water fountain. And the three brake through the host of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. That speaks to the caliber of the men who served under David. I mean, there's just, there's no way to put this, folks. It's the framework of the story. These guys risked their lives to get David a drink of water. That's what they did. David said, I'd like to have a drink of water. They said, let's go get David a drink of water. Uh, Whether that's loyalty or crazy or bravery, I guess you can kind of put your label on it. But this is the dedication of these men to their king. And then when they brought it back to David, he wouldn't drink it. And I have to, I don't know how you feel about that story, folks, but I was saved a long time before I could read that story without being really angry at David. I mean, if, 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 you, if you risk your life to bring me a gift and then I wouldn't take the gift, wouldn't that just be a hard thing to deal with? Or to flip it, if I risked my life to give you a gift and then you wouldn't accept the gift, I would probably find it very difficult to be lackadaisical about that. And it isn't that David didn't accept the gift, it is what David did with the gift. He poured it out to the Lord. And, and folks, Again, I'm not, I'm not saying I know how you read it. I'm saying I read it for a long time and it really troubled me. But you have to read it as it's, as it's written. David didn't throw the water away. He didn't pour it down the drain. He gave it to God. Rather than lacking value for the offering, oh, it's, just, it's just water and I couldn't drink it. It is an elevation of the value. It's not, it's not, I'm not good enough to receive the gift Only God is. That's the way to read it. But for me, that was a long time coming. I just read it at kind of a flat human level. What what kind of guy would throw away water that was that valuable? But it is David's exaltation of God. I think, folks, that the primary point of the story, right, is to elevate David's way of thinking about the Lord. David was a genuine, genuine man of God. And he had the hand of the Lord upon him. And he had a genuine, I mean, just 
read that, folks, in contrast to the life of Saul, because I think that's the way we're supposed to be reading it, and that's the way these people are supposed to be reading their history. Once upon a time, we had a man like Saul as our king. And once upon a time, we had a man like David as our king. And what a king he was. A man who truly put God first. A man who had God's hand of blessing upon him. And the, and, and the chapter then just kind of walks us through some of the ways in which the hand of the Lord is evident upon the king of David. In verses 1 through 3, God gives him the hearts of the people. God doesn't just make him king. Right? David is not just a, a, a begrudging king. He's not just a king that is tolerated by the people. He is a king that is loved by the people. Verse number one, all Israel gathered themselves to David to Hebron saying, behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And by the way, if we were doing this and we're not doing this, so only once in a while will we go back and look, but 2 Samuel chapter 5 is the companion historical narrative to this. 2 Samuel 5 is, or 2 Samuel is dealing with the life of David in kind of present tense and 1 Chronicles is looking at David's life and from a historical perspective. So you can lay the two together and, and see how they fit. <clears throat> but all Israel gathered themselves to David to Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and flesh, moreover in time past, when Saul was king, thou was he that led us down and brought us in Israel. And even when Saul was the king, you were the leader. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, thou shalt be ruler over them. Therefore, all the therefore came all the elders of Israel to the king to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. The chronicler does not tell you about the civil war that followed, the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. That's not in the narrative. Doesn't tell you how Ishbosheth conspired to become the king and had to be dealt with, one of Saul's other sons. The chronicler, and we'll see this time and time again, folks, as he is telling the history of David to the nation of Israel, he is magnifying the positive aspects. There are allusions to the realities of some of David's failures, but his emphasis is upon the good that David does. His emphasis is upon God's use of King David. David's son Solomon will speak to this kind of world. In the multitude of people is the king's honor, Proverbs 14.28. But in the want of the people is the destruction of the prince. It's a good thing when the people are happy with the king they have. Proverbs 20, 26, a wise king scattereth the wicked and bringeth the wheel over them. Something, the, never mind, I'll come back. I'll come back to the fools we presently have. Proverbs 25, 5, take away the wicked from before the king and his throne shall be established in righteousness. His son Solomon appreciated the position his father took and the contributions that he made. 
And the entire nation of Israel, folks, and this is, this is again something that the chronicler will emphasize repeatedly. All Israel, all Israel, all Israel was happy to have David. We share a common ancestry. We're your bone and flesh. You were the leader even when Saul was the king. And God said that you would be the one who fed us and took care of us. So God gave him the hearts of the people. In verses 4 through 9, God gave him military victories. Right? He's not just the king. He is a triumphant king. He is a king who is beloved by his subjects. He is the king who is mighty in his victories. So that you have in verse number 4, David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus. And why do we care? We'll come back to this, folks. But we do care. We care about knowing that Jerusalem is Jebus for a couple of really significant theological reasons. But we'll return to that. Where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land, and the inhabitants of Jesus said, Jebus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of Zerijah, went, up first, went first up and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle. Once again, you have kind of a, a condensed version of what happened in 2, Chronicle, 2 Samuel chapter 5. For when David and his men got to Jebus, the ruler of Jebus said, even the blind are able to defend this city. We are so secure that we can, we can put our old men and our, and our really bad health people out on the, on the front line, and you couldn't even defeat them. And David said, well, we'll see about that. And so you can read about it and the taunting. And David conquered it anyway. Now, again, what's the significance, folks? Why is, right, why is a man, and we assume that it is a man who is writing chronicles, writing 500-year-old history to people, and why when he writes 500-year-old history, does he tell them about something that's 2,500-year-old history? Jerusalem is Jebus. Let me just suggest to you that the answer to that is found in part in Genesis 15. You can turn to it if you wish, but I'm just going to read Genesis 15, 18. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now we're really going back. Right? Now we're really going back. The same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaims, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. When David conquers Jebus, folks, or Jebus, it's, it's not just a military victory. It's a theological victory. It is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham a millennia before. Abraham preceded David by 1,000, 1,500 years. And Jebus will be yours. I'm going to give you Jebus. And here's David conquering Jebus, a fulfillment of prophecy, not just a military victory. 
So God gave him the hearts of all Israel, and God gave him tremendous military successes. And God gave him wonderful helpers. That's really what the bulk of the chapter is in chapter 10, or chapter 11, verses 10 through 47. And the Hebrew narrative follows its kind of familiar pattern because God has a tendency to first give you the bulk of the information and then he has a tendency to come back in and add to it, fill in the details. Right In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's the bulk of the information and now we're going to go back and we're going to start all over again and give you the details. And so David has these mighty men to help him as king according to the word of the Lord. And then God talks about these men and their exploits. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't pose any threat to God or his glory to, to recognize his workers and the work that they do. And this includes, by the way, even Uriah the Hittite. As I said, there, there are indicators there about David's failure if we're looking for them. We know the story of Uriah the Hittite. It's hard to believe the Israelites didn't know the story of Uriah the Hittite. But you're never told about the sin with Bathsheba in the Chronicles at all. It is the good that David does that is the emphasis. So here is a man, folks. Here's, here's right. God destroyed the house of Saul because Saul wouldn't listen to him. There's the, there's the short, condensed, but very accurate verse. God destroyed the house of Saul because Saul wouldn't listen to him. And God exalted the, king, the seed of David because David did listen to him. And God gave to David the hearts of all the people. He was a king beloved by his subjects. He was a king who was successful in his military undertakings. He was a king who was surrounded by competent, brave men. I mean, if, you, if we just kind of begin to think about this humanly, folks, if you just think a little bit historically about some of the conflict that has arisen when you have a, a large company of strong men it's not uncommon for all of them to want to be the king. But these men are characterized by loyalty to David. And he has good men who have the hand of the Lord upon him. Again, unlike this present ship of fools that is our administration, I read... I could, I could find you the website. I can't prove that it's true because I don't even want to, I wouldn't even know where to begin looking. But this present president has deliberately, willfully, and consciously appointed 200 homosexual or transgender people to positions of responsibility in our government. This is godless rebellion at an unprecedented level. These people celebrate this. This is celebrated as a triumph and advancement of humanity.
And it seems that the only people that want to work for them are people who are corrupted in their own rights. And that is true, apparently, of most politicians and most of the parties. Now, the men that David had who served him were not perfect men. And again, if you go back and read the, chronic, the Samuel and the Kings, some of their weaknesses show up. But these were brave men who were loyal to David, who were instruments in his hand for the execution of God's business. They are commendable men. Which brings me again to this. Why tell these people 500-year-old history? Why tell these people 500-year-old history? And I would suggest to you two things. One is cautionary in nature. One is cautionary in nature. <clears throat> the only class that ever interested me in school was history. If I could have picked my, my class schedule, I would have taken history and then I would have taken nothing else. That was all that interested me, truthfully. Quite honestly, it, it is still the thing that I find most interesting. I do theology. I, I have to do theology. But I love history. I don't love theology. But I've told the students at Omaha Baptist Academy for years that academically, it is far more important for them to do math and English than it is for them to do history. But as I'm watching what we are doing to America by pretending we don't have certain historical facts, I'm beginning to rethink that. These people need to know the history of the foundation of their kingdom. They need to know what it was supposed to have been like. When they're sitting around explaining to their children how it is that they lost their country and they lost their king and they lost their temple and they spent 70 years living in a foreign country as exiles, what happened? Part of the story needs to include a sentence along these lines. You know, it wasn't supposed to be like that. We had a good king once. So there is value in understanding this, folks, for the point of reference historically. And if I could extend something along those lines to us, right, in the frenzy of 21st century Christianity, in the frenzy of all of the books that are available and the podcasts that we have about what church should be and look like and do, we are, not de we are not diminished by going back to the early church and learning from it. We are enriched by going back to the early church and learning from it. We are helped, <coughs> excuse me, we are helped by going back historically and getting our church moorings. But secondly, this passage is mostly valuable. It is valuable to these people who are the original recipients of Chronicles. And it is valuable to us because David's kingdom is the preview of the greatest king, Jesus Christ. And the greatest kingdom, 
Christ's kingdom. And the reason that David is mentioned with such frequency and such fondness, folks, is not simply because he was David, but because of the space that God gave him to be the precursor to Jesus Christ. So that when we look at David's kingdom in its best days, loved by all of his people, triumphant in all of its undertaking, surrounded by faithful, competent helpers, we know what to expect. Let's pray. Father, we pray for the return of Christ and the establishment of his kingdom, the greatest David. Physically the seed of David. Religiously the savior of David. Our Lord Jesus Christ, may his kingdom come. And may we be faithful and loyal soldiers until we see him in Jesus' name. Amen.